0: All right, if you want to go ahead and uh, make your way back to your seats. Well, good morning. It's good to gather with you. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, looking forward to continuing our time of worship as we open up God's word. And Kathy's going to be reading our sermon text this morning out of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So, listen to the word of the Lord.
1: The good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, you are great and greatly to be praised. Your greatness, God, is is unsearchable. And we pray that this morning as we dive into your word, that you'd help us to see and savor that greatness. God, would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. And by doing so, God, I pray that you would change our thinking and change our living and help us to respond in worship, not only today, but in the days ahead as we go from here. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. I'm sure most of us have seen uh, those pictures that people take sometimes where somebody's holding up the Leaning Tower of Pisa or holding the Washington Monument in the palm of their hand or picking somebody up with their thumb and index finger. Maybe some of you have taken those pictures. Why is that the case? I mean, how is that possible for that little girl to do that? Well, it's all about perspective, From the vantage point of the lens of the camera and our eyes, we perceive that the object that's really actually in the distance is on the same plane, an equal plane with our hands. From a distance, it looks like the Washington Monument can fit in the palm of your hand if you close one eye or if you take the photo with your hand in just the right place. But the reality is, when you get up close to it, your perspective changes. And now what looked small from a distance towers over you, the Washington Monument standing at 555 feet perspective and vantage point matter when we're processing what's right in front of us. And that's true not just of buildings and structures, but all of life. Well, today we're continuing in our sermon series called Under the Sun. We've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. It's a a book in the Bible that functions a lot more like a journal or a travel log than a letter or a story. The author is on this journey and he's taking notes along the way as he's testing out possible sources of satisfaction that can be found in this life, life under the sun. And he's talked about how everything the world says will satisfy you will ultimately come up empty, especially when God is not in view. And as we've seen, much of his assessment of life under the sun is bleak. But what he does in all this is he guides us to have the right perspective in this life so that we don't lose hope. Our perspective and vantage point will, will dictate how we process life, how we engage life under the sun. And that's what the author's doing in our text today. And he does so in a unique way and in a sobering way. This passage is, is unique. He, he gives us the perspective of wisdom in this text. In other words, he shows us that when you and I view life, when we view the world that we live in through the lens of wisdom instead of foolishness, we'll have a more sure footing in life. It's like putting on eyeglasses that enable us to see things more clearly. But in this, he also leads us to something that's really important. When we have the perspective of wisdom, we can trust in the sovereignty and providence of God no matter what comes our way. When we have the perspective of wisdom, when we put those eyeglasses on to view the world in that way, we can trust then in the sovereignty and providence of God. So my hope for all of us today, no matter where you're at in your relationship with God or what's going on in your life right now, my hope for all of us is that we'll gain and grow in a perspective of wisdom so that... We can also gain and grow in hope and peace as we live life under the sun. So let's jump into Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. You know, this section of Ecclesiastes is pretty different from what we've looked at so far. The, The preacher, as he calls himself, the author of this text shifts his writing style from what's been more prose to poetry. And what he gives us in these first 12 verses is a bunch of proverbs, a proverb is a short, pithy saying that is generally applicable. In other words, it states a general truth that isn't meant to be exhaustive. A proverb isn't a promise. A Proverb isn't a promise. It doesn't guarantee outcome. It's more of a practical guide for the various circumstances and situations that we encounter in everyday life. There's a whole book of Proverbs in the Bible. In your English translation of the Bible, it precedes the book of Ecclesiastes, maybe even written by the same person. And as often the case with a list of Proverbs, they don't always have a logical progression or a common thread that ties them together. In many ways, a proverb is meant to stand on its own. Well, as we come to these Proverbs, we see that they also don't have a logical progression. So it isn't super obvious why the author says what he does. But while there isn't a logical progression through these Proverbs, as the argument is laid out, there are some themes that start to rise to the surface. To be honest, this is a tricky text of jumping in here thinking, like I'm not exactly sure what the author is trying to accomplish at this point in his journal, at this point in this kind of travel log that he's giving to us. It isn't super obvious what's going on here. I mean, he's been on this journey. He's been sharing all of his findings along the way, but it almost seems like he's taking kind of an aside at this point. He's stepping back for a moment and saying, okay, time out. Let's think about what we've learned so far. Let's think about it and how that should impact the world that we live in, how we view and assess life. See, he's helping us navigate the mixed messages of the world we live in. Our world is constantly telling us all kinds of things, and so he wants to help us to know how we are to discern those things. So what I'm doing today, or what we're going to do today, is I'm grouping these in four different sections, kind of four vignettes that give us four perspectives of wisdom. And then we'll get to and dive into the implications of that in the concluding statement that we see in verses 13 and 14. So let's look at the first perspective. The first perspective of wisdom is about death. We see this in verses one through four. The proverb starts off well enough. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. What he's saying here is it's better to have integrity. It's better to be known for good character than it is to be known for your expensive things. That's what good ointment is. The ointment maybe doesn't cost as much today as it did back then, but that was a big deal if you had a, a fancy perfume or fancy ointment. So it's better to be known by your character than it is to be known by what you have. And we know that's the case all, the, all along the way. He's already told us that fancy things are going to pass away. So it's better to focus on who you are as a person than what you have. But that's not the end of the proverb. He continues, and the day of death is de- better than the day of birth. Well, that kind of suddenly takes a grim turn. Like, all right, what in the world are you talking about here? Well, he goes on to give some additional proverbs related to this theme of death, this theme of sorrow that help us to see how he's giving us a perspective of wisdom. Look at verses two through four. He says, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. The living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than Laughter. For by sadness, the, face, uh, the sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. This isn't a morbid view of life. What he's saying here is that the day of death has more to teach us than the day of birth. The day of birth is the beginning. Nothing's quite happened yet. But the day of death is the end. And all you can do at that moment is really look back. Or as one pastor puts it, it is the obituary, not the birth announcement, that best reveals the measure of a person. And that's the case. In that case, then, we can learn and grow wise. See, when we go to a funeral to celebrate someone's life, there's certainly mourning that takes place and sadness. We're sad that that person is gone. But also, there's a reflection of the reality of life and its brevity. It's sobering for us. It puts things in perspective for us. And in those moments, we're often challenged to consider our own life. That's what it means when he says the living will lay it to heart. They'll consider what is my life as I think about it. This is similar to what Moses writes in Psalm 90. After reflecting on the brevity of life, Psalm 90 verse 12, Moses writes, so teach us to number our days. Why? So that we may get a heart of wisdom. Wisdom. So in some ways, the author is saying, if you want to grow in wisdom, if you want to be able to engage life and think wisely about it and not foolishly, and you had to choose between going to a birthday party for a one-year-old or a funeral, go to the funeral. Go to the funeral. Now, again, I'm not saying that in a morbid way. Don't get out your phone and say no on the e that you got for the birthday party. He just wants you to think about where's the value in growing in wisdom. You're going to get more out of considering all of life than you are the beginning of things. But see, we live in a world that doesn't operate that way. It doesn't speak this way about life and death. If anything, the world we live in seeks to dislocate death from reality, to take our mind off of it and away from it, to ignore it, to remove it from view. It would rather us run to the house of feasting. Would rather us run to the house of mirth, which is a strange word. That just means amusement. Would rather us be distracted from something. And that's the inevitability of death that waits all of us in a fallen world. But the author's trying to help us in this. See, the sooner we come to terms with our death, the wiser our life has the chance to become now. Our, our pending death informs our prayers. It informs our life because it puts life in the right perspective. In Psalm 90, after Moses says this about teach us to number our days so we may get a heart of wisdom, he goes on to say, in verses 14 through 17, Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Moses is thinking about the end of his life, but he wants God to satisfy him. He may have joy in the midst of his life now. And then he says, make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us. And for as many years as we have seen evil. He recognizes a lot of what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes, that life is hard and there's difficult things going on. And then he says this, let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He's not giving up on life. He's not just saying, well, it is what it is. Now, he understands the brevity of it, but it doesn't lead him to despair. It leads him to seek God's face and God's favor in the midst of the brokenness of this world. That is a perspective of Wisdom. And we too can put on those eyeglasses and look at life the same way. See, because of who God is and what God has done for us, we know that while death is a hard word, it isn't the last word. In Hebrews chapter two, verses 14 through 18, the author of Hebrews writes this. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, meaning Jesus, likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver who all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery if we fear death if we look ahead at that and think we're afraid of that Jesus came to set us free from the slavery and the fear that comes along with that and how did he do that The author of Hebrews goes on to say, "'Therefore he had to be made like his brothers "'in every respect so that he might become "'a merciful and faithful high priest "'in the service of God to make propitiation "'for the sins of the people. "'For because he himself has suffered when tempted, "'he is able to help those who are being tempted.'" Jesus didn't stay at a distance. He entered into the mess of this world. He lived in the brokenness. He experienced the challenges and difficulty of this life. And he knew for even himself, death was coming, but not in the same way. And he went and he endured his death on the cross, not because he did anything wrong, but because he went there to rescue us out of slavery, to give us freedom so we wouldn't have to fear death anymore, but it could reframe all of life for us now. Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again from the grave. Now he enables us to see with new eyes, to have the mind of Christ that through that we can have the perspective of wisdom in our life from beginning to end. You don't have to have fear anymore. You can have hope because of who Jesus is. See, when we consider the temporary nature of this life, we too don't have to go towards hopelessness but we can see things in the right perspective. We can know that we're not just living for today. God has put eternity in our hearts. Now we're living for an eternity with our king in his kingdom. And that's been helpful for me. Whether there's little inconveniences in life or challenges or difficulties or things that I don't like going on, it helps put things in perspective of the grand picture, the big picture of what God is doing. And that I, one day, by his grace, will get to be with him forever. As the author takes this aside to assess and consider what he's learned on his journey, he gives us another perspective of wisdom. The second perspective of wisdom is about folly. We see this in verses 5 and 6. He writes, It's better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Rebuke isn't a word we particularly like or something we look forward to receiving. It's corrective in nature. And most often it feels like a sting to us because if all of us are honest with ourselves, we like to think we're way more self-aware than we are. When someone comes to us with rebuke or correction, they're pointing out something that we might not recognize or see for ourselves. It can feel humbling. Humbling. But instead of ignoring a rebuke or correction or getting angry with it, we should receive it for what it is, the author is saying, because it's a gift of grace through wisdom. So as we live life under the sun, it can be hard for us to discern God in the midst of life. Think, well, what's most honoring to him? What's he leading me towards? What's he doing in my life? I mean, there's so many messages coming at us all of the time from the world we live in. The world is constantly preaching to us, telling us where to find hope and how to find satisfaction and who we are, giving identity to us. It can be confusing. But when we have the perspective of wisdom, we recognize that the rebuke of a wise person is better than the promised fun of the world. See, the song and laughter of fools is fun for a minute, but it won't last. That's what he means by the crackling of thorns. It's just getting burned up. If anything, it's distracting to the real things of life that matter. Again, Jesus helps us with this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 30 through 31 the apostle paul writes and because of him because of god you are in Christ Jesus he's the one that's united you together with jesus jesus who became to us wisdom from god jesus is our wisdom he helps us to and he helps us along the way he's also our righteousness and sanctification and redemption So that as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's wisdom, and in wisdom in our life, he sanctifies us. He makes us more like himself. He points out areas of weakness and unholiness and darkness and shines the light of the gospel of his grace to bring about transformation and change in our life. So listen, if we're going to have the perspective of wisdom in this life, it would make sense then to surround yourself with men and women who are filled with the Holy Spirit who are willing to rebuke and correct and speak words of wisdom into your life, into if we're going to point us to Jesus more than those who just want to jest and joke and have fun. So ask you, do you have people in your life like that right now? Are you engaging in community in such a way that you have men and women around you? They're going to encourage you in this way. They're going to help you faithfully follow Christ. When this happens, it enables us to become sober-minded people, not stoic and emotionless, but clear-headed, able to see and discern what is right and good and true amidst the noise of the world. It's a call to be circumspect, to do what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17. He says, look carefully then how you walk, how you live life, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. People around us in community can help us to be able to actually do this. In this next set of verses, he gives us the third perspective of wisdom, and it's about character. Look at verses seven through nine. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. This section for me in verses eight and nine is particularly challenging. It talks about patience and anger because I struggle with both of those things. First, he says patience is better than pride. Now, I can read that and I can know that, but I don't always act like that. I can struggle with patience, patience with other people in my life, patience just with what's happening in my life. Patience, he said, is better, it's a wiser way to live than to be prideful and arrogant and boastful, thinking I always know better or am better, thinking I'm right without considering the thoughts and inputs of others. The perspective of wisdom would tell me to be patient and not prideful, to listen and learn. But the perspective of wisdom is not just about patience over pride, but also patience over anger. And he gives us a wise warning. He says, don't be quick to anger. Why? Because anger lodges in the heart of fools. That's strong imagery. It takes root. Anger gets down deep. It infects and impacts so much of life and relationships. It manifests itself in so many ways. Whether that be when you're out driving on the road, somebody cuts you off. Or you're dealing with disobedient kids or a roommate that keeps not cleaning their dishes up after they've eaten or maybe someone on social media. There's things that provoke us to anger, but that anger, when it's lodged deep in our heart, makes us foolish or leads us to do foolish things. The reality is impatience and pride and anger are all about a person's character. A character is a reflection of a person's heart. Jesus tells us out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, our actions flow. When you and I put on the eyeglasses of wisdom, when we look at life and situations and circumstances from that perspective, then we can see it is better, as James 1 says, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Wisdom helps me to see that impatience and pride and anger don't produce righteousness in my life. They don't produce goodness in my life. They help me to see them for what they are. They're foolish and unhelpful. And it leads me to repentance. When I'm angry or impatient, God gives me wisdom to see that I can turn away from that and turn again and ask for his grace and forgiveness. So how can I overcome these things? How can we overcome Spirit that's maybe impatient or angry? Well, you and I can only do this when Jesus invades our life. Because Jesus alone is the one of perfect character. And he's the one who helps us even now. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. Say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus lived in this world. He had the same temptations that we face, the same opportunities to be impatient, the same opportunities to be prideful or arrogant or angry, but he didn't do that. He walked in perfect obedience, going to the cross, dying for us. So then, the author says, we can with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Listen, do you need help to walk in wisdom in a way that is glorifying to God? Do you need help with patience or anger or pride or arrogance? Then look to Jesus and ask for his help. Ask for his help. He's the one of perfect character. See, when I have the perspective of wisdom to slow down, to step back, then I can see that it's by the work of God's word and the work of God's spirit that my character will grow in a way that gives glory to God because he's at work within me to help me become more and more like my savior. The author isn't done yet. In verses 10 through 12, he gives us a fourth perspective on wisdom. And it's about our focus. Look at verses 10 through 12. He says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. I think this perspective of wisdom is also particularly challenging because he begins by telling us it's not wise to look back and long for the good old days. Why is that? Because the good old days don't exist. They don't exist. The reality is, as we've seen in Ecclesiastes, there's been no time when there wasn't trouble or challenge in this life. Sin had it has had its effect in our lives and the world ever since it entered the world. But I think a lot of us can struggle with this. We, we pine for yesterday, forgetting that yesterday had plenty of troubles of its own. And when we do that, we reveal a, a, na- a naive view of life. Now, this is a call to not live life by looking in the rearview mirror, but instead to focus ourselves by looking forward. That's what wisdom would have us do. Jesus again did this to our benefit and for our example. Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through two say, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set not behind us, but before us, looking to Jesus, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus didn't look backwards. He didn't long for the good old days. No, he looked forward, knowing what he was going to accomplish for us in the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He enables us to have a hopefulness in looking ahead, knowing that he's at work in our world and in our lives. And listen, we'll continue to encounter, encounter challenges, encounter struggles in life, both personally and in society. And until Jesus returns, brokenness and sin will still impact our lives and impact our world. And we don't always know exactly what that'll look like or what that'll mean. But when we have the perspective of wisdom, it can help to preserve life, to protect us from darkness, to throw off the sin that so easily entangles us when we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as we run the race that's set before us, looking forward in hope instead of backward in vain. See, the wise person is neither naive But they're also not cynical and embittered about life under the sun. Why? Because the wise person knows who God is. They know who God is. This leads to the concluding statement of this section. We see in verse 13, the author writes, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Now, this isn't a call to fatalism. He's showing us something here that when we have the perspective of wisdom, it's then that we can trust the sovereignty and providence of God no matter what comes our way. Now, what do I mean by sovereignty and providence? Sovereignty is about authority and power. The king is sovereign over his kingdom. Providence is about care and oversight. So because of who God is, we can not doubt if he's sovereign and providential in a good way or a bad way. We know his character and nature, that he's loving and he's patient and he's kind and he's gracious and he's good. Even when life seems bad, even when life seems out of control, wisdom can help us to trust him. Verse 13 starts with a key phrase. It says, consider the work of God. If we're going to live life under the sun with hope and not despair, then we must be wise. And if we're going to be wise, then we must consider the work of God. In verse 14, he teases this out a bit more. He says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful over that. The day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So we have to remember that God is over the good days and the hard days. Nothing is out of his control. We don't know what's coming next, but he does. So in that, we can trust him. We must trust him. Man, that's hard, isn't it? Because sometimes God does things and God allows things in our life that seem crooked. Experience disease or difficulty, suffering or sadness, tragedy or trials in our life. And in those moments, we can be tempted not to have faith in the faithfulness of God, but to look for answers and hope in someone or something else may even be reminded and encouraged about the truth of who God is here on a Sunday, but how often, how often do you and I live as functional atheists when we go into the world? Especially when we encounter challenge in life. Disbelieving God, forgetting him, putting him on the back burner, thinking there's no way he's in control. I've got to do this on my own. Zach Eswine, a pastor and author, wrote this. He says, when God's people walk out of God's house... And respond to the folly they find under the sun by becoming foolish themselves. There is little wonder why it can seem that God is nowhere to be found in the news, our neighborhoods, or our daily toil. And we forget who he is. So what are we to do in those times? Wisdom would have us consider the work of God in a particularly challenging season in my own life, I was really struggling to trust God to figure out what in the world he was doing. And I was starting to drift towards despair. But by God's grace and kindness, he smacked me in the face and the heart with 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9, where Paul writes, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Sometimes we go through difficulty and challenge in life. Crooked things are taking place in our life, and maybe God's at work in that so that we don't rely on ourselves, that we don't act foolish, that we don't set God aside, but instead rely on the one who raised our Savior from the grave. And when I remember that, when you remember that, it can help us to trust him, to know if he can do that, he can do anything. He can help me. The author of Ecclesiastes, who's seen the difficulty of life, the vaporous nature of it all, he's helping us, he's showing us that wisdom recognizes that God is sovereign, not us. That God is in control, not us. That God is king, not us. Pastor and author John Piper once tweeted, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. And it puts things in perspective. The wise person will rest in this reality. He's God, I'm not. When you and I consider the work of God that we see on display throughout his word and throughout his world, we can trust that he is still full of steadfast love, that he is still faithful. And this is seen ultimately when we look to the cross of Christ. I mean, this seemed like the most crooked of all things. Here we have a man who's perfect, never sinned, never done anything wrong, yet dies a brutal and heinous death for nothing, for no reason that he deserved for it. And in that moment, it looked bleak, it looked dark. It looked like darkness was winning the day, but God used it for our ultimate good. Like we sang earlier, our hope in life and death is the fact that Jesus lived and died for us and rose again. We can see that God used something like that to bring redemption in our own life and redemption to the world and one day we'll make all things new. When you and I recognize this, we can say along with the psalmist, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, right? I'm feeling despair. I'm feeling like darkness is winning. What does he say? Even the darkness is not dark to you, God. The night is as bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. We can trust in him. As you and I live life under the sun, as we seek to view it through the perspective of wisdom, we can look again to the father who sent and the son who came and the spirit who is at work. Brothers and sisters, life under the sun is challenging. It is hard. We don't have to fake it till we make it. We don't have to put on a smiley face and act like everything's okay. No, but our triune God is faithful and true and we can trust in him because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that truth provides hope, it provides stability, it provides an anchor for our souls. Listen, you and I can't fix most of what's wrong in our world. But when we have the perspective of wisdom, instead we can go into the world looking at each thing we see, each thing we experience in light of who God is and what God does. Pastor Tim Keller said, if we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. If we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what He gives. That is seeking to view life through the lens of the perspective of wisdom. We may not know everything God is up to, we may not understand why certain things happen, but we can know Him. You can know Him. And because of what Jesus has accomplished for us, we can trust in him. We can bring all things before him, knowing there's no aspect of your life. There's no aspect of this world that is outside of his knowledge and outside of his control. When we have the perspective of wisdom, we can cry out with the Apostle Paul, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. We're gonna come and take communion together now. So if you don't yet have the elements, you can go grab those. They're on the table in the back or along the railing if you're up